Welcome to Charlotte Reader's Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show that features stories and poems by local and regional authors, the kinds that touch the emotions, followed by conversations that offer depth and insight into the readings and writing lives of the authors. We record this show in the well-equipped podcast studio at Advent Coworking, located right here in the Belmont community near Uptown Charlotte. Support for Charlotte Reader's Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, conveniently located in Park Road Shopping Center. And by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. For more information about these book-minded sponsors who help authors give voice to their written words, please visit them online at parkroadbooks.com and cmlibrary.org or drop by the bookstore or any library branch. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the stories. I'm your host, Landis Wade. Thank you for listening. In today's episode, we meet Mark Perez, author of the book and the podcast by the same name on Life and Meaning a collection of 100 essays inspired by the 100 guests who appeared on the podcast he hosted for 100 continuous weeks between 2017 and 2019. Guests who appeared on the podcast and who are featured in the essays include artists, writers, philosophers, civic leaders, consultants, executives, entrepreneurs, religious leaders, innovators, creators, and more. Mark talked with them about their work, their life, their higher purposes, Because as he says, the heart of the project was the notion that we all want to know and be known. Mark saw the podcast as an art installation, a gallery of portraits of people making a difference in the world. The book is a gallery, too, with stunning black and white photos of the guests and essays about what makes their hopes and dreams and lives special. We start the show with an audio clip from the first episode of the Own Life and Meaning podcast and then a short read by Mark from his essay about that episode where he discusses the mission of the podcast and ultimately the book. Teeth is an initiation. So there are the natural initiations, and then there are also these more, uh, again, you, for lack of a better word, esoteric initiations that have to do with the awakening of your soul in pursuit of its mission in life. And so that's how I frame everything. I see everything in terms of our journey, our soul's journey in pursuit of a meaningful life. And there are certain key moments in that journey and in that pursuit that are initiatic. They change the way you see the world forever and you can never not see it that way again. Peter Reinhardt is a baker of bread and a master of metaphor. For him, bread is the staff of life for our bodies and for our souls. He is one of the most popular instructors at the Johnson & Wales University College of Culinary Arts, host of an international symposium on the future of bread, a TED presenter and food entrepreneur. Peter is also a theologian at heart. His lectures and numerous cookbooks about the art and science of baking are deep spiritual lessons about who we are and why we are here. He has led an extraordinary life as a seeker of truth. I'm Mark Paris, and this is On Life and Meaning. This was the first episode of what became a long-term series interviewing fascinating people about their lives. I've always been curious about people, who they really are, what they desire, what matters most to them, and why. Every person has a story. I enjoy discovering that story. This show has a mission. The mission is to contribute to a more humane world. The show does so by valuing truth and beauty, by paying attention, by honoring thoughtful conversation and meaningful connection. There is a philosophy that guides this show, a set of beliefs that frame the questions I ask. I believe we attract into the world who we are. I believe love is well-considered creativity. I believe fulfillment is living our purpose well for others. I believe ideas define the future. 
I believe the arts are a vessel of our humanity. I believe our beliefs should be questioned. I invite you to share in the mission and vision of this podcast. Author Mark Perez writes and speaks about purpose and significance in life and community. He is a professor of leadership studies in the College of Arts and Sciences at Johnson and Wales University, where he teaches courses on ethics and social venturing, including two courses he developed, The Good Life and How to Change the World. He founded Charlotte Viewpoint, a magazine about the civic and cultural life of the Charlotte region, and he's the producer and host of the Own Life and Meaning podcast, a conversation series with 100 guests about what matters most. Mark is interested in how we create good lives and great communities. He earned a JD from the Florida State University College of Law and an AB in History from Rollins College. He is an American Leadership Forum Fellow and a Leadership Charlotte graduate and the recipient of the Algernon Sidney Sullivan Medallion for Leadership and Service. His previous careers include financial advising, business, and law, but his real passion is exploring what to make of this life. Host Landis Wade is committed to making this podcast worth your time. He's a recovering trial lawyer, award-winning author, book and dog lover, whose laid-back style encourages authors to read and talk about their published and emerging works. You can listen to this show for free at charlottereaderspodcast.com or at Charlotte McMurg Library's digital branch website. And you can subscribe and listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcast. Show notes of this episode with images, links, and information about the authors are available at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Mark, welcome to the show. It's great to be here, Landis. Thanks so much. Yes, how does it feel to be on the other side of the microphone? It's terrifying. <laughs> you, don't, you know, you're in the driver's seat, and then all of a sudden you've got no control over the wheel, right? Exactly. <laughs> you don't know what I might do, what I might ask you, right? I might ask you some of those hard questions that uh, you ask some of your guests. Well, you know, I have uh, great empathy for my guests uh, <laughs> upon reflection. Yeah, well, first of all, congratulations on completing a 100-episode interview-based podcast and a book filled with 100 essays about the guests and topics. That was probably no easy feat. I got it done by having great guests who encouraged me and have great stories to tell. Uh, I felt uh, obligated to them to do as good a job as I can uh, and to meet my commitments to them. And that kept me going. And uh, I'm really um, grateful for them and uh, proud to have the project done. You know, I often think that uh, in an interview-based podcast, at least it has been for me, you know, you're only as good as your guest, right? And you certainly had some really uh, quality guests on your on your podcast. But, okay, preface to this episode, just so our listeners know where we're headed today, we're going to dive into a number of sort of one-minute readings from this book uh, on life and meaning. Uh, we're not there yet, and we're going to talk a little bit more, but as they demonstrate uh, these nuggets of wisdom about life, we're going to sort of share those. But first, um, Mark, you had 100 conversations on this podcast called Own Life and Meaning with people who had a real purpose and a passion for life from a whole broad section of the community. In a sense, you know, I was thinking about this today. You, you were kind of sitting on this spiritual podcast mountaintop with all these people coming to you, and you were asking them the meaning of life. So so my first question right out of the gate, you've had, you've had 100 interviews. You know where I'm going. What is the meaning of life? <laughs> you have plenty of time to think about this, Mark, now. Well, I think... <laughs> if there is a meaning to life, Landis, it's in asking the question. Okay, all right. So I've got a. Is this like I'm back in law school now? This Socratic method. Is that, is that how this podcast is going to be today? I'm going to ask a question. You're going to print professor and ask it right back to me. I, I mean, look, I graduated from law school already. We, we don't need to do that again. All right, okay. You're not going to give me the answer yet. We're going to have to sort that out through the episode. I get it. I get it. But first, uh, back to the opening read, uh, that first episode. Your essay, and by the way, just um, you—you've got these episodes out there for people to listen to. You've got titles for those episodes, but then your essay—it's almost like the essay is something that came to you out of the discussion, but not necessarily eighty or ninety percent of what the discussion was about. Am I right about that? You're absolutely right. In fact, the subtitle to the book is "One Hundred Essays Inspired." by 100 guests. And so I would sit with the guest, I would listen to them, I would do my very best to 
uh, read them and to um, be in their presence and to uh, look for and sense something essential about them. And all of that would serve as a trigger, as a prompt uh, for ideas that I had, for um, stories in my own mind, uh, for experiences that maybe the guest and I shared. And often uh, what triggered an essay might be a conversation that we had off the record uh, Mm -hmm. in leading up to the the, um, conversation or afterwards. And then I would sit with it for three or four or five days and then have a very quick turnaround to write an essay. Sometimes I would give myself two or just three hours to compose something given the schedule that I have. And then all of that would percolate, all of those ideas that I've been thinking about overnight, uh, inspired by the guests, would come to me, and then I would write. Okay, we're going to get to the writing life, probably dive into that a little bit when we get to the writing life segment, but uh, let's, let's kind of go back to this opening read for a second. Bread is a metaphor for life. That uh, episode was with uh, one of your colleagues at Johnson Wales University who happens to be a baker, right? Peter Reinhardt, who is a world-famous uh, baker, and he's highly regarded for what he does. One of the things that Peter said about the topic of bread was, I think the two of you came at it together when you were talking about it. There's kind of a metaphor for life. He talked about bread being flour, water, salt, and yeast. And I was actually thinking about this, that 60% of the body, human body is made up of water, right? And, and I actually looked online, and the brain and heart are 30, 73% water. So as you're sitting here, you know, probably bad analogy here, but, you know, you've got this podcast. You're selecting these ingredients, in your case, your guests. You're inviting them to your oven, which is your podcast studio, and then they're going to rise to the occasion, right? And they're going to give you everything so that you can find the answer to the meaning of life. Is that right? <laughs> That's brilliant, Landis. Okay, okay. Yeah. all right. I just want to make sure I understood yeah. where we're going there. But on ser- on the serious side, though, Peter tells the story so well, and it's um, it's a story he's been telling for many many years. He see- he sees the stages of bread production from what he calls wheat to eat uh, as uh, a metaphor for how we live and um, and how each stage we can learn something about our own transformations in life. Mm. And his particular story is one of a remarkable uh, spiritual quest that he's been on over his many years. And the story he tells, each stage of that spiritual quest, he ties back to each stage of bread production. So when you started this podcast, so so one of the things we're not going to be able to do today is do justice to all the people who appeared on your podcast. We don't have time. So listeners... Please go listen to the podcast, find out about the lives of all these interesting people. What we're going to do today is talk about some of the themes and some of the topics. But I'm a little curious, Mark, you start this podcast, you're going to try to get this cross-section. How did you go about figuring out who to interview and have any idea what they might say that might lead you to the answers you were looking for? Well, I'm often asked if I had a list of 100 names, and the short answer is no, I did not. Uh, I turned to um, my close friends, people that I knew that I had ongoing conversations with, that I knew were fascinating and had interesting stories to tell, and I asked them if they would be my initial guests on the podcast, and they said yes, and I'm grateful to them for that. But after that, the process was organic. Uh, I would often get a reference or see something in the newspaper or reach out to someone I saw in a magazine or look through uh, the folks that I knew and... um, and then it just started rolling from there. And, uh, and sometimes it was completely serendipitous as to who my next guest was. And, and what I'm amazed by in retrospect is the 100 guests really reflected the diversity and range of the community. Yeah, you did have a lot of diversity there. I was a little curious about why you chose this medium to explore this topic. Um, you know, you're a writer. You could have interviewed them and written a book without doing all the things that go into podcasting. What made you decide you wanted to sit down with them and record their conversations? Well, I can't tell you how many times I had conversations with many of them over a cup of coffee. And afterwards, I would say to myself, that was such a fun conversation. I wish I had recorded it. Mm-hmm. And a couple of times when you actually did record it, you sat down later and said, damn, I wish I would have recorded that. Because right? <laughs> exactly. you, do, you do confess in your book one time about how you failed to hit record. That's, all podcasters do that, right, Mark? You did it too, right? More than once. More than once. The thing I found interesting about it was, I can't remember the exact guest who did it, but uh, I was reading the book. You interviewed them, and you got in some really you know, hard questions to ask. And then when you realized you hadn't recorded it, they came back, and then it was a different interview, right? You'd already asked those questions. 
So you took it in a different direction. That was a conversation I had with Henry Rock about uh, race in America, and it was a really hard-hitting conversation, and he revealed a great deal. And and I was so locked in uh, with an hour's worth of conversation with him, and then I found out later that none of it was recorded. Yeah, and it was it was <laughs> heartbreaking. Terrible. <laughs> and uh, and yeah. the, the second conversation was equally fascinating, but in an yeah. entirely different way. So, Mark, I felt a little bit of pressure today. Uh, you know, you had this heady topic. You'd been studying this with a hundred people. You know, I've read your book. I've listened to your podcast. Not all hundred, but I've listened to them. Were you nervous as you conducted some of these interviews? It's a lot easier on that side of the mic, Landis. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I think uh, for me, it was just, am I honoring this person? Right. Am, am I drawing out what I think they want to be said? Mm. You know, I think they were clearly nervous, as I feel it myself now, that uh, this is out there for eternity. Uh, people who I don't even know will be listening. What impressions? That assumes, I hit, re- that assumes I hit record, Mark. <laughs> yeah, make sure you hit record. <laughs> it does. The, the red light's on, so I think we're good. I think we're good. All right, well, look, let's start this off, yeah. and uh, we're going to work our way through it, starting off with a little read. That it's about 50 seconds. It's about you. It's, uh, I think that it's called Cathedrals, Finding Your Way. It's just a short uh, read. If you could, uh, I think it's self-explanatory, so anytime you're ready. I left the law to write a novel. I lived in a small apartment in Miami Beach and wrote during the day and noticed everything in late-night diners and cafes by night. I pressed down on dark bruises, and I repaired. I returned to the law in a new city, knowing one day the best part of me would be expressed in a different way. I met the woman who would become my wife. We talked about living a life that would be more authentic, more creative, and entrepreneurial. We soon had our beautiful daughter, and it was then that I left the law. Today, I teach courses in leadership, creativity, and ethics. Every day, I enter a new cathedral, grateful and privileged to be among men and women constructing examined lives. When we think freely when we learn and serve, when we support each other in joy and with courage, we dare to know. So, Mark, you, uh, like me, are a recovering lawyer, right? Long recovered. <laughs> You've long recovered. It's still, there's not a little bit still in you there? There may be. Yeah. And you were struggling because you were dealing, I mean, you were doing good work in the legal profession, but it just, it didn't, it wasn't resonating with you. You wanted something more, right? Yeah, I didn't feel aligned in terms of my values, and it may have been the particular experience that I had at that law firm. Uh, may, If I had landed somewhere else, I, I may still be practicing law today, but that's how the journey unfolded. Mm. And I like the last line here. Um, you say, when we think freely, when we learn and serve, when we support each other in joy and with courage, we dare to know. And you dared to know this morning because I asked you what time you got up, and you said you uh, you taught class at 7.30 this morning, right? I did. I taught the Good Life course on Monday morning at 7.30, and it's quite a challenge to energize and uh, stimulate those students, but I do my best. I don't know if I feel more sorry for you or for the kids who had to get up <laughs> and be there at 7.30 this morning. But So uh, how do you do that? you offer extra coffee or something in well, the morning? you certainly want to feel more sorry for them than for me. Okay. And that class, um, you've got, I think you said, 35 students in it, and they're engaged in exploring this idea that you also kind of explored in this podcast, right? It's one and the same. In fact, teaching that course and teaching other courses around ethics and philosophy and, and how to impact the world really was an influence for the launch of this podcast. It was an extension of my academic work. Uh, there were other influences as well. But um, often ideas come to you in the middle of the night, and I think uh, having done all of that academic work and teaching it on a daily basis, this really became an extension of those questions that I was asking. Well, no offense to the academic community, uh, but this doesn't read like an academic book, which is good. <laughs> you, you trained yourself well. That, yeah. that, that might be the best compliment yeah, you've given yeah, me. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to go to another uh, short read. It's about a minute. It uh, deals with the topic of cities because when you do – try to find the meaning of life, a lot of times you are in a city. And uh, we're in the city of Charlotte here. It's changing over time. I think, uh, again, this speaks to the diversity that exists in cities, so whenever you're ready. Hundreds of popular songs are sung today about the cities we live in, from Randy Newman's Baltimore to Bruce Springsteen's Streets of Philadelphia. In L.A. Woman, the doors personify the city of angels and embrace her dark, magical tension. We can imagine Jim Morrison in the heat and night of Sunset Boulevard and imagine ourselves, too, in love with the searing, yearning embrace of Los Angeles. 
We can imagine the flirtation of Hollywood, the beckoning of Santa Monica, the lies of Brentwood. We can imagine the city as a nubile starlet, as a reigning star, and as an aging movie queen ready for her all-too-strange and harrowing close-up. In all these instances, the city lives. It breathes, hurts, and offers salve. It churns, congests, and absorbs our confidences upon its warm asphalt skin. The city asks for toil, seduces desire, and leaves us let down. There is the angst and promise of place, mirroring our imperfections and all that we are. So, Mark, talk just a second about what inspired this particular essay. Landis, as long as I can remember, I've been drawn to cities. I've been drawn to skylines and to buildings and to urban life and to the mix and mingle of people on the streets. Uh, I think of myself as a, as a city person through and through. And I loved this particular essay because it allowed me to think about the rhythms and music of cityscapes. And so I tried to capture that. And you call this uh, essay personification of place. And in writing, you know, setting is often critical to a story. In fact, sometimes setting can be a character unto itself. Uh, the character that you've inhabited for many years is Charlotte. How would you describe Charlotte? Well, I've spent many years thinking about Charlotte and describing it, especially in the magazine that I founded and published for many years called Charlotte Viewpoint. Charlotte is often described as adolescent, ambitious, aspirational, um, having earned an MBA as opposed to an, as opposed to an MFA. Uh, it's a city on the make, and it's a city that leans into the future, and I think all of those things are exciting. Mm. Leaning into the future, that's a uh, topic we're going to get to a little bit later. But first, we've got a fun little read here. Um, we started with you. We went to cities. Now we're going to talk about voices. And I, I, I saw this... Uh, essay that you wrote, uh, it involves the voices of NPR. It sort of springs off a discussion uh, that you had. Well, the conversation was with Michael Goldfarb, who is a London-based reporter who reported for NPR for many years, and his voice is so recognizable when you hear it. And of course, when I heard his voice, it brought back the voices of so many other reporters I heard on NPR growing up. All right, anytime you're ready. Here are a few names I grew up with. Susan Stamberg, Bob Edwards, Carl Castle, Noah Adams, Linda Wertheimer, Robert Siegel, Scott Simon, Koki Roberts, and Bob Mondello. Each name evokes a voice, a style, a beat that is the new soundtrack of our lives and shared imagination. We hear their stories as they report from bureaus from foreign capitals. Eleanor Beardsley, Paris, Rob Gibford, London, Ophieba Quist Arcton, Dakar, and of course, Sylvia Pajoli, Rome. And on a much lighter note, we love NPR reporters for their wonderful, instantly recognizable names. Lourdes Garcia-Navarro, Dina Temple-Raston, Charlene Hunter-Galt, and Corva Coleman. If we had a litter of kittens, we would name them after NPR reporters. Our Persian cats would be Nita Ulabi and Soraya Sahardi Nelson. Our Bengal cat would be Lakshmi Singh, and our American short hair cat would be Renee Montaigne. And our favorite cats, of course, the ones closest to our hearts, would be Ari Shapiro and Yuki Noguchi. Ari and Yuki curl up beside my wife and me every night as we fall asleep to familiar voices on the radio. <laughs> okay. That was great. What, great way to take those names and, and turn them into a, a litter of cats. Uh, but it's true. Every time you hear a voice on NPR, you think, okay, were they born that way? <laughs> Or do they go to the courthouse and, ch- and change their name? Because when you say Sylvia Bajoli, you know where she's reporting from, right? Exactly. You yes. have to know where she's reporting okay. from, right? Um, okay, so you, you, you know, you're, you've moved from the law to a different path to teaching. You're settled in Charlotte at Johnson & Wales. You're listening to the voices of NPR. You trust these voices that you listen to, which kind of leads to this idea of truth, that you explored, too, on your podcast. In fact, the next couple of reads here are going to deal with truth, happiness, and virtue, okay? So what inspired this particular essay, Mark, that uh, deals with truth and humanities? I was interviewing Charlie Elberson, and if you know Charlie, he works at Ray Ward, and he is a marketing executive. And he spends his days uh, excavating and clarifying what a company wants to say in their brand. 
And the questions he asks are really about how people are moved emotionally encountering a product or service. And the questions really are absolutely similar to the same questions that the humanities ask as a discipline, which is, what does it mean to be human? What is it that we respond to? How are we wired to make sense of our lives? And as a child of the liberal arts, as a child of the humanities, that's what I thought about when I was inspired by Charlie. And that's what you wrote about, so if you'll start right there. I'm a humanist. I study the humanities. The humanities ask the question, what does being human mean? It seeks the truth of being human. The humanities, history, philosophy, religion, language, literature, and the arts, record our answers to that question, answers that are always true in revealing something about ourselves. My love for the humanities was planted early in life as I listened to my dad tell stories of 19th century Jewish merchants who emigrated to the Amazon jungle. The love was tended by public school teachers in New York who read T.S. Eliot and Catholic nuns in Rio de Janeiro who played the music of the Beatles on acoustic guitars. The love flowered in college as I read Fitzgerald and Bonhoeffer. The humanities ask why we are here and what to make of pride and despair. The humanities glorify and challenge our earthly vanities as the skull of poor Yorick did for Hamlet. The humanities howl at angel headed hipsters who burn for ancient heavenly connections to the starry dynamos of the night. And they give hope to skywalking heroes who fly into the depth of death stars. So Mark, that's uh, very poetic. And as I'm listening to that and thinking about all the people that you interviewed, including people that are in business, I wonder how many times during the day they have the chance to sit and reflect on, on these kind of things. And, and yet this podcast that you do, that's kind of what you're for, you were forcing them to do, right? I mean, not forcing them, but you're sitting them down and, and giving them, I guess, the privilege to sit there and think about these broader questions. Well, the privilege was mine, certainly. But yes, I do think that in our hearts, we all want to have these conversations. We go about our lives and have to manage the challenges of the day and living in the 21st century and paying our bills. But in our hearts at 2 o'clock in the morning, when we're staring at the ceiling, there's something more primal and essential going on. And, and my job was to do my best to express that poetically. So, Mark, we're going to get to some um, some other ways that people can, you know, make sense out of the meaning of their lives. But a lot of times people think about, you know, how can I be happy? You know, how can I have a fulfilled life? Uh, and is happiness hedonistic or is happiness something else? And so you actually wrote an essay uh, about that. Well, happiness is a topic and a module in this course that I teach called The Good Life. But... In this instance, I was having a conversation with Karen Geiger, who is a leadership organizational advisor and counselor and consultant. And we were talking about how she works with organizations to make sure that they operate more effectively. And invariably, happy employees came up for discussion. And so it was in that context that I wrote these words. Key strategies for happiness include being in flow. Flow is absorption in one's work that is a perfect blend of challenge and skill. Creative insight is heightened and time flies by. Having more flow in our lives makes us happier. Another strategy for being happy is practicing mindfulness. Mindfulness is being in the present moment. It is fully attending to what is happening, both outside us and within us. We are alert to the sensations of our minds and bodies. We become more mindful through conscious intention and movement. A third strategy for being happy is learned optimism. The idea of learned optimism is that we can cultivate resilience and empowerment. We can practice replacing negative self-talk with positive thoughts and behaviors. We gain a greater internal sense that we can control events and outcomes. I like that, Mark. Uh, Being in the flow, um, mindfulness, and uh, also this idea of optimism, being an optimist for well, I don't know if people say I'm an optimist, but I've been an Optimist Club member for, for many years. The first line of the creative, which is promise yourself to be so strong that nothing can disturb your peace of mind. So there you go. So that's, that's a good way to start. Well, okay, now, you know, you can't have happiness uh, without having some meaning and purpose to your life, though, right? And you talk about this concept of virtue, which we're going to do a short read on before the break here. That topic came up when you were interviewing 
uh, Carol Hardison, I believe, um, I believe you titled the essay A Life of Care and Virtue. Can you talk just uh, briefly about what led you to include that in your essay through the discussion with her? Well, Carol leads Crisis Assistance Ministry, which is an organization that provides assistance and advocacy for people in financial crisis. And to spend time with her is to realize that she's made a commitment. Uh, She left the corporate world to spend her time with the least among us to make sure that they can pull themselves up and uh, contribute to society and live good lives. And for me, that's virtue. All right, and so when you were sort of reflecting on uh, these this concept of virtue, um, you sort of you sort of laid out four four thoughts for us to consider, um, which you've called virtuous practices. Could you share that with us? We talk about four virtuous practices. One, self knowledge, doing the work of self examination and doing the deep work of clarifying values, beliefs, and strengths. Two, mindfulness, stepping out of routines to act intentionally. Meditation, contemplation, prayer, and walking in the woods invite mindfulness. Three, moral imagination, envisioning a different and better world, declaring a future desired state sets energy in motion. And four, moral stretching, practicing acts of goodness that develop moral character. Courage and grace are daily exercises. So, Mark, I, I hope the listeners don't feel like we're force-feeding this because we're really running through a lot of different ideas here to try to capture the essence of what you did over a couple of years with a lot of essays and a lot of conversations. But, um, you know, these these ideas here, truth, the humanities, happiness, virtue, um, they all lead to some of these other ideas that we're going to talk about uh, on the podcast today. And these are the things you talk about with your students in class, right? They are. I think it's essential to living a fulfilled and satisfying life. And it's not something that's often talked about. More often than not, our students are just learning disciplines in order to work a trade. And But I do think, as I shared before, there is a yearning to matter. There is a yearning for connection and to be known. And so we have to talk about these concepts that uh, are based in who we are as human beings. And we have words for them, we have strategies for them, we have practices for them, and we talk about them in our class. And don't you think that uh, you you draw happiness from a virtuous life as well? Yes, but I will say a virtuous life does not necessarily lead to happiness. Okay. All right, so here we go, listeners. Uh, After the break here, we're going to keep diving into some of these concepts here. We're going to deal with uh, leadership, social activism, uh, we're going to talk about grief and gratitude. Uh, we're going to hit the writing life segment. Uh, we've got a couple of uh, well, a couple of short final reads as well. So please stay with us. Hey, listeners! I'm here with Fabi Pressler, owner of Spark Publications, an independent publishing company that helps business owners and corporate professionals to tell their stories while sharing their knowledge. And today we're talking design. Fabi. What do you design at Spark Publications? We design beautiful books that are packaging all that amazing copy and content into a presentable package. And you're doing both the covers and the interior of the books, right? We do. So we're designing for marketability. In other words, we design the covers to attract the intended audience, and the interior pages are designed to function as intended for the user and the reader. And this is a wide variety of businesses that you deal with? It is. It's anywhere from um, attorneys to HR professionals to small business owners that have very specific knowledge base. Hmm. You've also done some legacy and coffee table books, uh, beautiful books I've seen them that help showcase and preserve, you know, a special knowledge or skill that someone has. Do you have any examples of that? Um, One of the most recent we've done is for Mark Paris and his collection of 100 essays inspired by guests on his podcast. And Kragi and Drayson has multiple volumes of Duck Decoy collections. So Mm. legacy books are printed on that beautiful glossy paper and they have the nice hardback. So they're just a a work of art in themselves. So is it true that people do judge a book by their cover? 100%. (laughs) 100%. And so where do we find out how to design a good cover? Well, why don't you reach out to info at Spark Publications com and we can get the conversation started or go to sparkpublications.com backslash books and see some of the things we've already done. All right, thanks. All right, we're back with Mark Perez, author of the book On Life and Meaning and also the podcast of the same name. Uh, Mark, before the break, uh, we were exploring uh, different topics that uh, you discussed with your guests on the podcast in which you wrote essays about. You dealt with a lot of leaders 
that as you interviewed a lot of leaders, and one of the things you said in your book is that ethical leaders work to create positive outcomes informed by moral values such as honesty, integrity, and fairness. Was that a theme you found in, in a lot of these people you interviewed? There's no question about it. Uh, all of these folks were uh, leading ethical lives, not perfect lives, but ethical lives. They were concerned about the choices they were making and the impacts they had on the world. And and they were interested in fairness. Uh, they were interested in outcomes. They worked to make the world better. And one of the things that you talk about to your students, and, and you told me that you actually gave a lecture in my alma mater to the Bonner students on this idea of how to choose your vocation. And, and you sort of came at it with four different concepts. Just real quickly, can you tick off the four? Because I think it leads into the next uh, read we're going to talk about here. Sure. Uh, there are four different ways that we can sort of approach our work life. Uh, first is work as a job. Uh, work in order to pay the bills and to earn an income and to get a paycheck. And so many people really are in that category, um, whether you're getting paid a lot or a little. Uh, the second approach is a work as a career, but being more of a careerist, where you are pursuing the next rung on the ladder, uh, seeking the next promotion. The third approach is work as fulfillment, when you marry your passions and interests with your work. So uh, you're more integrated in uh, pursuing your creative aspects of your life uh, with your income. And then finally, the last approach is work is calling, where you uh, hear a voice that tells you that you are should be doing a certain kind of work in the world to make the world better and serving people other than yourself and greater causes. And, and you interviewed a number of um, people that had chosen a profession that was a calling. And uh, social activism, I think, can sometimes be considered just that, people who are socially active, um, from their real jobs, but also if they choose a job in which they're socially active. And you had an interview, I believe it was with uh, uh, Patrice Funderburk uh, about uh, what she chose to do, and it led you to write an essay called Existential Choice and Formation. Talk about that. Well, Patrice was a corporate employee. She was an executive at a large corporation, and she had a personal incident, which I wrote about, that transformed her life and led her into a different direction, a direction of pursuing calling. All right. Would you share that with us? When Patrice Funderburg told her story of going on a run with news weighing on her of yet another black body dying at the hands of law enforcement and how it led her in that moment to confront who she wanted to be and what life she wanted to live, I could see the memory of it come over her. A spirit had moved through her. It became vital within her. I thought of her story as her conversion on the road to Damascus, I thought also of the words of Viktor Frankl, author of Man's Search for Meaning, a defining book of the moral philosophy I hold true, that we determine ourselves whether we give in to conditions or stand up to them, that we always decide what our existence will be, that the next moment is ours to make, and that every person has the freedom to change at any instant. Every situation we encounter is ripe with meaning. Existence confronts us with choice. The decisions we make determine who we are. And yes, uh, we take our hats off to people that uh, stand, you know, firm with their convictions, and then uh, you know, put it into momentum and uh, take take on a job or a career, or whatever it may be, to uh, to try to make a difference in the world. And uh, I suppose making a difference in the world is part about finding the meaning to life, right? <laughs> I think so. And it's also podcasts like yours, Landis, in which you invite <laughs> yeah. pe people into literature and into yeah. books and. You're doing purposeful work, and I imagine that's why you're called to it. Yeah, it is. It's, um, it is a passion. It has to be a passion, right, Mark, to, to, to try to figure out all the, the right buttons to push and, <laughs> and the editing and so forth. Uh, but that's, that's a story for another day. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that another time. Um, this essay, though, led me to pick out a couple of other essays because I thought this idea of you know picking – a profession or picking a vocation to try to make a difference in the world, it doesn't always go the way you want it to. There are setbacks. There is fear. There is grief. Um, you talked about fear and grief with a number of your guests, uh, some of whom had some pretty horrific stories to tell. Uh, the one that I'm thinking of is Amanda Howard, your guest for the uh, episode that uh, where you're I believe your essay was entitled uh, 
Release from Fear. Uh, how'd you come up with that title? Well, that was the title of uh, one of the first columns that Amanda wrote when she first moved to Charlotte and wrote for a local magazine. And she entitled it Release from Fear uh, about incidents that were happening in terms of crime in Washington, D.C. But it really became evocative of so much more that was happening in her life. Yeah, I listened to that podcast recently, and uh, it was pretty gripping. I mean, she was a rape survivor. A friend of hers died at about the same time. She got caught up in a cult. She was thinking about suicide, and yet here she is, right? And uh, you had to, and you sat there and talked with her about these difficult topics. I did, and she was brave, and she shared it. And um, I know anecdotally that many other people who listened to that episode were moved and ended up confronting issues in their own lives. So it was a great, brave act on her part, and um, and she's a good friend, and she's doing great work in the world. And at about the time that you interviewed her, she was actually working on uh, her memoir that related to everything that she had gone through. Um, if you could just uh, read that uh, short section to us. Amanda Howard shared with me a memoir she was writing called One Clear Voice. Only a few people knew what was in her memoir, and she trusted me to read it. In page after page, she detailed being raped, the death of her best friend, her suicide attempts, and being part of a cult-like group that took hold of her life for over seven years. She wrote about her life after leaving the group, her relationships and affairs and drug use, exploring boundaries that had long been transgressed. She was unrelenting in detail, writing down scene after scene, taking herself apart to piece herself back together. I was gripped by her writing and by her self-examination. Every page was an act of catharsis and self-creation. And one of the reasons I asked you to read this section is because it involved writing, and we deal with writing on this podcast. And a lot of times authors who appear talk about the writing process, including memoir, being cathartic. Um, you clearly got that message from her when you interviewed her that writing this down was helpful to her. It transformed her life. Uh, And I think this book in many ways was cathartic for me as I explored many stories in my own life. So yes, I think, uh, I imagine you've had so many discussions with writers and it is a cathartic therapeutic process. And until you just read it again, and I'd read it before, but I'd listened to the podcast recently, the title of her memoir, One Clear Voice, came from this technique which the cult leader used to try to get the people in the cult not to have thoughts of their own. When they started to wonder whether they should be there, he would say, we've got to have one clear voice, one clear voice. And that would be his voice. Right. And, of course, that's the great story that Amanda tells is that ultimately she claimed her own. Okay, can't do it all. Go listen to the podcast and you'll find out more. Let's shift a minute to grief and gratitude. Did you have an interview with Marjorie Benbow? Could you read that essay for us? Marjorie is redefining her life after the loss of her husband. She has asked herself hard questions about purpose and meaning. She has restructured her career and passions to live life more freely around the natural laws that guide her, her curiosity, her creativity, finding joy in helping others. Marjorie is working on smaller, but no less significant moments. She shared with me that Friday nights were movie and popcorn nights with her husband. Marjorie now watches movies alone. Marjorie said something during our conversation that I know is true. The other side of grief is gratitude. As sadness fades and we begin to emerge again, the memories we have are good ones. What we thought mattered doesn't anymore. What we didn't appreciate, we are grateful for now. So I listened to that podcast, and y'all were talking about planting flowers on 20 acres of land. And all of a sudden, Mark goes off. He's the botanist all of a sudden. He's asking five, ten questions about how to plant flowers and how to save the pollinators. And then he finally gets back to this topic, right? But it was good stuff. I enjoyed listening to it. Uh, but she was actually um, actually creating uh, – she's a, she's a lawyer by day, but she's gone through this terrible loss in her life and uh, – putting it back together and I think she said that uh, she thinks about herself differently and about life I think one thing she said I think it was her that she said she starts to think about things in in ways that she gives other people more credit than she used to 
whereas before she might have given herself more credit <laughs> for something. Um, how was that interview to do? I was listening to it. I thought, this is difficult to talk about. Yeah, Marjorie is a remarkable woman. Uh, she's led many lives. She's a scientist. Uh, she's an attorney. She's an educator. And uh, she had this uh, long love affair with her husband, and she speaks about him uh, with such affection and grace. And then she lost him. And she went through a deep cycle of reconsidering her life, the choices that she's making, and how she can bring truth and beauty into the world. And um, the way that she's confronted her grief ultimately was, come to, was coming to a point of gratitude about the life that she has led. And I think the farming and the poppies and the flowers really uh, is so evocative of the cycle of life and how she's tending to that uh, to have her own life sort of be reborn. Mm. And how the deer eat sunflowers, right? <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the things that came, came, yes. out, came out as well. Uh, no, but gratitude is a, it's an important thing, and I try to remind myself of that a lot. I saw a book one time called The, the Gratitude Journal, where if you write down things that you're grateful about, it's, it sort of takes on a life of its own in your head, and uh, good thing. So you can put the book aside for a second, Mark. Uh, uh, we're doing the Writing Life segment now. I guess I'll ask this question since it's Writing Life segment. Uh, do you believe that writers often write as a mechanism to try to find meaning in their lives? Uh, no question about it. I think it's, uh, it's a way of uh, digging deep and excavating and putting words to uh, concepts that might be very uh, difficult to express. And, and so journal writing and writing narrative and writing stories and, and fiction and memoir, uh, these are just, um, just powerful ways to to discover who we are and to share that with the world and, and have, have the world respond. So in this class you teach, Mark, called The Good Life, you talk about creating artifacts that outlast us. Is writing for you one of these artifacts that you hope to leave behind? I don't think I write intentionally to have something left behind so that way someone will discover me, but I know that's what it does. Uh, I think that uh, subconsciously, intuitively, that's what creation is all about. In some ways, it's a confrontation with mortality. And, uh, you know, there's an old story, the uh, um, story of Gilgamesh, where he um, seeks immortality. And the lesson there is that if we are immortal, we stop creating. So the creative instinct really is a confrontation with death in some ways and, and um, to seek to live. Yeah, and I was interested in, in this essay that you wrote related to that class that you teach uh, in your book. It, uh, you call it memory and love. I was, I was interested in the first paragraph. You talk about that you explore the topic of death early on in that class, the good life. Oh, that's a great way to start a, a class <laughs> on the good life. Let's talk about death. But uh, I think you're doing that to, to, I don't know, maybe to illustrate the fact that we're all going to die and uh what should we do with this life that we have, this little time that we have on earth, and we never know when it's going to end? So what do you tell them on the first day of class, Mark, <laughs> to keep them a little, a little upbeat after that, uh, after that message? Uh, try, try having that discussion on death at 730 in the morning. Gonna, I was going to say, it's, it's probably the way they kind of look at 730 in the morning. But, and I'm curious, what, what is the difference? I'll just ask you this now. What is the difference between the way your students come into this class on the first day and how they leave on the last day of the class? It's a question I think about a lot. What's the journey I'm taking them uh, through, and what do I want them to experience at the end of the day? And I want them to have a deep insight into who they truly are, not who they need to be uh, to affect themselves or to be perceived in a certain way or to achieve a certain status or to be well-received in the world, but ultimately, to be brave enough to say, this is who I am, to have a life philosophy, to be able to express their core values and strengths, uh, and to be courageous about who they could possibly be in the world. And it's a lifelong quest. Uh, it certainly is not going to happen in 10 weeks sitting in class when you're 18 years old. But if we can plant a seed uh, and have them commit to cultivating that seed, then their lives are going to flower. Hmm. I'll talk about the book just a second. Uh, first of all, the book is beautiful. It's, uh, 
I, I will say, though, Mark, you created a problem for me. I normally write in my books and make notes. But I didn't feel like I could write in this one. <laughs> it was too pretty. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's glossy. It's, it's uh, you know, I just I had to put all these stickers on there. I couldn't even write in the pages. But, uh, and it's also heavy, Mark. I mean, any coffee table out there that's not really stable, this thing will hold it down, right? It's got a few pounds to it. Yeah, and it's also heavy figuratively, right? Because you're dealing with some weighty topics, yeah. right? I mean, it's it's you just didn't it didn't go in your back pocket. I mean, this is how long did you think you were going to put this together as a book? I mean, was it from the beginning, or were you just writing essays, or did you start out thinking this is going to be a book? When I started the podcast, I did not have the book in mind okay. at all. Okay. Um, when I wrote the remarks for my first guest, it led to remarks for the second guest. And by the time I was in week three or four, I realized that I was writing as part of this process. And if I stayed with it, then after 100 weeks, I'd have 100 essays. So somewhere along the line, um, it dawned on me that uh, I had a book on my hands. And then the writing took on an extra urgency and extra care um, and um, at the end of the day, I'm proud of it. I think uh, if it all ends tomorrow, then this is on the shelf and someone would have a deep insight to me and also deep insights to the 100 people who graced me with this project. No, it's, it's, it's clear that you were serious about both the written word and also you know, how it would be judged, as I say, book judged by its cover and all that kind of thing. Uh, because it, uh, it is a nice work. And, and you chose to go with... Uh, uh, Spark Publications, who you, you used, who you worked with collaboratively to create this this book. Um, what was your thinking about working uh, to do it independently as opposed to trying to publish it elsewhere? Yeah. Well, Spark Publications were a great partner, and uh, they really sat down with me and asked me what I envisioned and uh, really committed to an intensive process to make this happen and to make it happen relatively quickly on an aggressive schedule. Um, I think... The reason I wanted to do it independently, I think, is the same reason that independent filmmakers produce films separate and apart from Hollywood. Uh, they have control over the final product. They have control over distribution. Uh, it's an expression of their artistic vision and integrity. And for me, being an independent author is similar to being an independent filmmaker. And, um, and so it ultimately, I think, expressed uh, what I had in mind and, uh, and spark was a great partner in making it come true. Okay, Mark, uh, you, you talked in the book about uh, several traits that all of your guests uh, had in common. You talked about the fact that their imperfections were a source of their strength. They stepped into their insecurities. They stepped into their doubt. They faced their fears. And you said you have a quote over your desk that says, in the cave you fear to enter lies the treasure you seek. How long have you had that in your office? <laughs> That's a quote by Joseph Campbell, who talks about the monomyth, the hero's journey. And, um, and part of that hero's journey in life is to, is to confront our ultimate fears. And when we do that, we are released, we are liberated, we are transformed. Uh, and we find the very thing that we were most fearful about is the basis of our greatest strength. Hmm. Were you a little bit uneasy? Maybe this podcast thing was kind of going into a dark cave. <laughs> you might not come out. Or uh, was it was the higher purpose of what you're trying to do? Was, did it guide you through this, uh, through this experience? Well, I'll say the, uh, the dark cave for me is often public speaking. Okay. Uh, and speaking into microphones like yeah, this. Yeah. But I think for many of our guests, the, the, their ability to have impact in the world they often had to confront very sensitive things in their own lives. So it didn't come easy for them. They had to leave corporate careers. Mm -hmm. uh, they had to make uh, different uh, commitments to their families. Uh, they had to pursue passions not knowing whether it would turn out well. Um, and all of them made those choices, but those choices ultimately really uh, benefited them and benefited everyone around them. So they confronted their risk. They confronted their fears. You also said that uh, the other trait that your guests had in, in common was that uh, all the guests of this podcast experienced love, and love protects them and validates them, whether it's love of a parent, a spouse, or a friend, or the love of God. Did it always come out in the discussion that appeared on the air, or sometimes what you picked up beforehand, or as you were reflecting on some of the things you heard? 
Yes. Yes. To all that's one of those. That's one of those multiple guest questions you can't get wrong, right? All right, Mark. Look, we're going to finish the writing life segment with this one last question. What were you searching for in this experience, this podcasting writing experience, and uh, and did you find it? It's a wonderful question. I'm not sure I had a a very clear sense of what I was seeking. I think ultimately I wanted connection. Uh, I wanted to sit across from someone and to learn and for them to reveal themselves honestly. And as they modeled that, uh, I became braver in my own life doing the same thing. Um, So there's such deep capacities I think we have that often go unexpressed and It takes um, moments of intimacy, moments of expression for us to gain some traction uh, and for us to be brave in being who we are. And so if I wasn't outright intentional in thinking that's what was going to happen, that's what happened. And um, I'm better for it. Okay, Mark, we got time for just a couple of more uh, quick reads and conversation before your final read of the day. And uh, since you and I are both... uh, well, I'll speak for myself. Maybe I'm a little beyond midlife. I don't know, but you got this midlife thing going on, right? I mean, I went from a trial lawyer to a podcaster. Now, you got out of law earlier, but you started moving in a different directory. But I would have to say, perhaps, Mark, that taking on this project was a little bit like buying that red convertible and driving you know, through, through the mountains. Maybe not as easy as doing that, but uh, it was a decision you made to try to do something different to add some meaning to your life, right? More like driving a Prius. Okay, <laughs> driving a Prius. Great. All right, talk about uh, we're, gonna, we're living into values now. We're trying to find uh, in midlife those things that, uh, that bring meaning to our lives. And you spoke with Stephen Valder. And tell us about him and what led to that essay. Stephen was a pediatrician uh, for many, many years. And midlife is tricky, as we know. And a time came in his life where he confronted his values and who he wanted to be. And he left the practice of medicine, a very brave choice, uh, to devote his time to affordable housing and social justice issues. And he's a real inspiration. All right, so uh, if you would read that little section for us, please. In midlife, we confront the loss of youth, an endless series of tasks that don't seem to matter very much, the narrowing of what has become our lives, the irreversibility of time, no longer recognizing ourselves in the mirror the decline of skills and talents, and the death of friends and family. People can feel the weight of it all. But on the other end of midlife, something happens. We transition to something better. There is more reason to hope. There is more reason for gratitude. What was once important is less so. We live into our values. We honor friends. We pursue interests. We live and let live. Life satisfaction soars. And I would like to say, or so we hope, right? <laughs> because that is what we should be doing at this point in our lives, right? Because you don't know. Again, you just don't know. And why, Mark, can't we think about those things earlier in life? Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. Wouldn't that be great? Uh, well, you, you did talk to, uh, and this gets to sort of the next two quick reads, uh, uh, Never Too Late and Second Mountain, but you spoke with Sally Robinson, and she was at age 85. She was... She was still wanting to connect, right? She, she, was, she is as youthful and energetic uh, as one could possibly imagine an 85-year-old being, probably even more so than most 25 and 35 and 45-year-olds. She lives in the present. Uh, she wants to be better. Uh, she makes connections. Uh, she is uh, an authentic human being. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it was a great privilege to talk to Sally. I think you said she said it in the present tense at the age of 85, leaning into the present future. She wants to be a person who can connect, right? Yeah. That's great. I mean, look, when we're 85, if we're not just sitting on the sofa doing, you know, we need to be connecting, right? We need to be doing things. All right. Leads us to the second mountain. What is the second mountain, by the way? The second mountain is the title of a book by David Brooks, a columnist for the New York Times. Okay. So I'm going to have you read just a short section uh, of that essay. The book is an exploration of what it means to live a meaningful life. Brooks believes meaning is found in moral concerns, our regard and commitment to our work, to our friends and families, to our faith and philosophies, and to our communities. 
The sum of our lives depends on what choices we make and how well we execute those commitments. David Brooks and I have that view in common. Indeed, the On Life and Meaning podcast is an assertion about this core belief. We are as good as our devotions and how we embody them. Brooks noted that people who are fulfilled have often climbed two mountains in life. The first mountain is one of personal ambition. We go to certain schools, pursue certain degrees, accept certain jobs, and marry certain people to show our merit and experience personal happiness. Then one day we look around and the view is unsatisfying. Something is missing in our lives. Things happen that knock us back. A loss of a career, the death of a loved one, an illness, or the end of a relationship. We enter a valley. We experience a season of suffering. During this time, something is exposed. We become raw. Some of us are broken apart. Others are broken open. If we are fortunate, a transformation occurs. Sometimes, suddenly, more often slowly, we find within ourselves what matters most. We elevate our desires. We shift our devotions from what we want from life to what life wants from us. We discover purpose greater than ourselves, and we begin climbing a second mountain. All right, Mark, before your final read here, um, we've already talked about how time-consuming this project was, how many different people you came into contact with, what you learned, what you wrote about. Has this changed the way you teach your classes now? Has it changed the way you look at life now? Has it changed Mark Paris? Well, I certainly, I think, do my best to appreciate this life that I'm living, and I do my best to express gratitude for the people in my lives. I do think it's changed my teaching. In fact, I've brought some of the material back into the course. So students are asked to listen to podcast episodes. They're asked to interview other important people in their lives and to be podcast interviewers. And to That's give... a hell of a way to get downloads, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> I just increased my downloads by 35. My student had to read, listen to my, my podcast. Yeah. But, uh, no, we, so we do know, Mark, that uh, this can th- – th- this whole experience, I mean, just sitting down talking with someone and – seeing something from someone else's perspective can start you to thinking and contemplating and hopefully moving you in a different direction, you know, personally, uh, which brings us to your final essay. You finally had to write a final essay. Pressure to kind of sum all this up with one essay. I mean, when you sat down to do this, right? Well, the backstory on that essay is I didn't give myself very much time to do it. And um, I really was feeling the weight of it and just sort of prayed into the moment that I hoped it would come. And interestingly, I I was kind of in a down mood when I wrote it, um, but I think that actually helped capture the tone that I wanted to express. Why were you in a down mood? I was in a down mood because the night before I went to an event and found myself among a hundred people and it all seemed kind of um, inauthentic Mm -hmm. to me. You were in a superficial world all of a sudden after you've been trying to dig more deeply. Okay. Your words. Okay, my words. All right, so look, readers uh, and listeners, this is not the whole final uh, essay. It's part of it. Uh, uh, just, just a little, about a minute and a half. But um, So, Mark, whenever you're ready, you can uh, pick it up. In 100 years, the 100 guests profiled in this book and I will be gone. One of us will die first, and one of us will die last. Sooner or later, our deaths will put a period on our lives. We can mark it with a date of death on each page as the 101 counts to none. We gather with family, we enjoy our friends, we work, we love, we make plans. We age, and our lives end. We may die in mid-thought or embracing the light. We may be surrounded by people who care for us, but we go through the passage alone. 100 billion people have lived and died. Each looked at the stars. So what to make of this life? Before Shakespeare, there was Ecclesiastes. The teacher made these points. One, the march of time does not yield. Generations come and go. There is nothing new under the sun. Two, we share the same fate. The good and the bad, the righteous and the wicked. We can't work or pray our way out of the death that awaits us. Three, Life is random. The race does not always go to the swift or the battle to the strong. Time and chance happen to all. The teacher adds that all is mere breath. Everything is dissolving fog. Even wisdom 
is chasing the wind. What are we then to do? We are here to breathe. We are under the sun. Everything finds its place. Every secret thing. So Mark, that's uh, it's a great reflection, and I can see now why you didn't answer my question at the beginning of the podcast, because maybe it's there's not a single answer to this question, right? I don't think there is. Right, right. It's yeah. uh, You've got to live life, life purposely, and uh, as you say, we are under the sun, everything finds its place, and hopefully we'll all find our place, um, maybe before our midlife crisis, right? <laughs> Before we before we lean into it too late, this, if, if there are any young listeners out there, you know, lean into it earlier, right? Mark, is that your advice? I yeah. think so. Yeah, thank you. Hey, Mark, thanks so much for taking the time today to uh, sit down, and uh, I feel like uh, we we really uh, pushed you through a lot of different aspects. But it's a like I said, it's a heavy book, right? Literally and uh, figuratively. So, uh, listeners, go out there, and there's going to be information in the show notes about. Uh, Mark and about the book, you'll see the uh, book cover. You'll see how to uh, find it. Uh, you'll find out more about Mark. A picture you might have a picture of him in the studio here. So, uh, Mark, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks so much, Landis. It's really been a treat. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker, and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week, I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. <laughs>